we have been stealing the future from our children. Challenges of conservation and combating climate change are connected. Corruption is being created by wildlife crime. Speciesism is very much the same as racism or sexism. We must rethink our relationship with wildlife, the environment and each other. Join us as we uncover the innovative, unifying and urgent solutions we need to protect the planet from ourselves. This is the art of conservation. How are you guys? Um, we, I, I think this is probably the most dispersed we've ever been. Shan, you're in Cape Town. Peter, you're in Wales. And I'm back at the sanctuary. I managed to drive in late yesterday afternoon or early evening, should I say. And it has been so much rain up here, guys. I um, I was ice skating to try and get in. Um, I was sliding all over the show, but managed to get in after a, after an interesting drive up the mountain. Um, and it's just so wonderful to be back up here. It's bloody freezing, but Munu is Munu is doing well. Um, we're learning so much, you know, be, black rhinos lose a lot of condition as they go into winter. So it was really, really startling for me to arrive here and see Munu for the first time in a couple of weeks and just how much weight he's lost. Um, and yesterday evening was quite startling, but this morning managed to get up and spent an hour walking around with him this morning. And I, it was, it was wonderful. And he's, he's doing okay. We need to supplement his food a little bit better um, potentially, and, um, just make sure he's getting the best of the best so that he can get through winter. But my gosh, it is cold. I think even as thick as a rhino's skin is, I think we're all freezing up here, but it's also miserable in Cape Town, Shan. Um, today's actually quite beautiful. No, it's sunny today. I'm going to go to the horse sanctuary later. It's beautiful. But yesterday's raining and I think it's going to rain over the weekend. So it, I think it's the most rain on record ever here. I, that's what I've heard. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Wouldn't be surprised. All the dams are full in the Western Cape, so that's a good sign for us. Yeah. But, of course, there's been a huge amount of flooding, which, again, is, is, is fine if you've got a strong brick house, but so many people are out in shacks, in low-lying parts and have been inundated. So, you know, all the rain, which is good for the country as a whole, comes at a cost, a human misery cost as well. Yeah. But I guess all all these uh, extreme weather events have that effect. Um, but yeah, here in Wales, it's dry as a bone, and everybody's complaining of a heat wave. What is it? So, but a heat wave here starts at about twenty-two degrees C. <laughs> so you've got to get you've got to get it in perspective. <laughs> I, I remember Caroline. You, my, my you're talking of the, sorry, sorry. You're talking about the the rain, um, but perhaps what a lot of our uh, listeners don't realise is that South Africa has quite a bit of snow in winter. It's not the kind of snow that last for days and days and days but at the moment all the way from the Drakensberg mountains in the far east all the way through to the western cape mountains they're absolutely uh, covered in snow so that, that's that's why it's it's a lovely a lovely sunny day shan but still quite chilly anyway uh, i love it this way i'll take it 
that's good stuff. I, I, yeah. I, I remember a couple of years ago, uh, Caroline, my my sister who lives in Wales, uh, that you're visiting now with uh, Peter. Uh, she said to me, you know, she's really looking forward to summer this year because she thinks it's on a Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it starts on a Tuesday, lasts a couple of hours, and then it's over. Yeah. Anyway, we've, we've it's been quite a busy um, two weeks since we last since we we last recorded, um, and I want to kick off today, if I can. There was a question sent to us, gosh, probably about three weeks ago now, uh, asking about the South American vacuna, and is it not the best example? that we currently have of how lifting a ban in trade can work. Um, and it's often used as a parallel to the question of rhino horn trade. And so I took a bit of a, a deep dive into it, and I'm going to start off with that today um, and just talk through it and where it was potentially successful, but why more and more there are questions as to the efficacy and has it actually changed anything. So just a, a quick look at it. The, the species of vacuna, uh, vacuna vacuna, is a member of the, the camelid family. So it's similar to a llama, but much smaller in size. Um, it's native to the Andean uh, highlands. So that's sort of Argentina, Peru, Chile, Bolivia, sort of that whole stretch. And when when they first started to spin it, uh, it was the world's most expensive fabric. Um, it's eight times finer than human hair. So its softness, its pliability was highly uh, was was highly desired by designers, particularly in in Italy. Uh, and a coat, a vacuna wool coat, could easily set you back ten plus thousand dollars. Um, and each coat you need the wool of at least 30 animals to produce a coat like that. So it's highly, highly intensive usage. Um, and prior to European colonization, the vacuna was, 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 was a sacred animal. And the only people that were allowed to wear that wool were the, uh, were the royalty. So there wasn't pressure on its usage because it was so revered as a sacred animal that was only represented within royal households. And it was only after sort of the Spanish conquest um, all the way through to about 1960, 1964, sort of the early 60s, there was pretty much unrestricted hunting. And as Europeans and European manufacturers at that time realized how quote unquote awesome you know this this fiber was it decimated the population and wiped them down to sort of the mid 60s they got down to about 6000 animals and they were on the brink of extinction given the the, the rate of hunting and were declared endangered um in 1966 i believe it was the Nature Conservatory was established for the vacuna by the Peruvian government, and that was the only government that of its own accord sort of went to look after these these animals. And with the assistance of the US, the World Wildlife Fund, and I think there was a university or the University of Lima, uh, all combined to create it. And they did a pretty good job of maintaining those numbers and stopping the rot, so to speak. 
1975, they were listed on CITES Appendix 1, and all of it was was wiped out. Um, and it's the numbers started to come back during that, that ban. And there was a, a Vacuna Convention that was signed in the late 70s, 1979, um, that brought together the protection efforts of Peru, Bolivia, Chile, and Ecuador at the time. And they kind of, they, they, they did all right. But the pressure from Europe in particular, from the textile companies, continued. And it started to gain the sort of commercial notoriety. And, um, you know, they've, they, the pressure on those, on those wild populations remained. But the Vacuna conventions started to set up these structures to say, how can we better look after them? Is there a way to, to, to potentially trade them? And it was a very collaborative approach. And so it went on. Um, but brands like uh, Loro Piana, um, which I know from my sailing days, huge, huge fashion house, uh, Italian luxury fashion brand that um, pushed them massively, and that was a that was a real a real problem, and it was seen as a bit of a you know cash crop during that time. But under the under the CITES ban there was no trade and there was a big push to say if you could increase the vacuna numbers and you could satisfy this market this very contained market in europe in in italy you could do two things you could alleviate the pressure on the vacuna numbers and you could alleviate poverty and the reason why i think it is a fair comparison and it's and it's a needed comparison is because even back then in the 60s 70s going into the 80s there was a call to say that whatever trade in, in vacuna wool had to uh, benefit local and impoverished communities. It had to play a role in some kind of societal transformation and, and societal well-being. Then, uh, thanks to the efforts of all of these guys, you know, the vacuna Con uh, convention has managed to get those vacuna numbers up, but at the same time, CITES agreed to lift the trade ban on parts of the vacuna populations of Peru and Chile. So uh, Ecuador and Bolivia remained under the un, under the protection. So they were pushed back to Appendix Two, uh, with strict control measures were put in place, and certain herds and farmers had to comply with these regulations, and vacuna could be farmed. So the idea being that you would alleviate the pressure on the wild populations if you were able to farm them, and. The numbers admittedly <clears throat> grew considerably. So around about 1994, it was revealed that the numbers had gone from that early 6,000 uh, number and had gone up to 66,500 animals. In 1994, they relaxed the, the, the trade ban and more people and more populations were, were able to get access to this. In 96, the, the National Council for the South American Camelids started a program based on community-based wildlife management, um, <clears throat> which is sort of the, the, the mantra under different names that many areas of South America and certainly in Africa, we're grappling with. How do we instigate sort of or initiate and start up local economies in impoverished areas through the utilization of wildlife that are uh, endemic to those to those areas. So this was set up to try and 
orchestrate the relationship between governments, between uh, the farmers, between the communities, etc. And they kind of, they sort of got it got it right in some sense. Over over, over a, a, the period from the mid nineties, uh, the trade in the vacuna fiber increased seventy eight percent. The annual value of these exports, largely from Peru, hit an approximately $3.2 million per annum. And Italy is the main destination and remains the main destination for this trade, um, with items then being pushed mainly into China, surprise, surprise, Switzerland and the US playing a major role in the, in the demand factor for the final product. But where it started to fall over is that studies since then have suggested that if you think about the retail value of these Ten fifteen thousand dollar vacuna wool coats and and uh, sort of cardigans or whatever they make out of it. Um, studies recently have suggested that out of that value, there is only two to six percent of the value of the vacuna trade actually goes back to those communities. And what I want to emphasize in that is that what should go back is only that number. And what we're seeing more and more is that as those commercialized farms have increased in value and increased in trade, it's been what we've seen in in South Africa, is that you've got a predominantly white, and in many instances in South Africa, foreign farmers who are coming in and trying to capitalize on this. And they've got the experience, they've got the capital, they've got the money to scale those businesses where those rural communities don't. And they're not receiving the value from the Vacuna will trade to allow them to scale their, their, uh, their operations. So they're being squeezed out by this commercial agenda. So what we've seen, which the writings on the wall here, is that the, the size of the populations held in community hands relative to its ability to trade is there's there's no parity in that and for me that's the biggest lesson out of this is that everybody looks at it in the single audit line of did the trade in in vacuna increase the population yes it did but it did not radically increase or proportionately increase the wild populations of vacuna and the uh, and the safety of those vacuna, and they are still under threat. They are still being poached, um, and those local communities are the soft targets. So all we've done is that we've created this wonderful journal entry that says the population has increased over a thousand percent in the last half a century thanks to trade, but they have been farmed. That is not a conservation solution to suggest that over eighty percent or eighty-five percent of the global vacuna population are being farmed. They're agricultural stock. They're not wild vacuna. And the wild vacuna still remain threatened. They're still being poached. And those tasked in those rural areas to better protect those populations are the very people that were supposed to receive the ultimate benefit from this trade. And they simply have not received that benefit. So it what it has proved in my mind, in my sort of simple language, is that an agricultural solution to a conservation problem, no matter how regulated it is, the commercial viability and the, and the scalability of those commercial traders skews the value 
put back into conservation and put back into those communities. So while many will argue that it is an extraordinary success story of delisting an endangered species to be able to trade it to lift their populations, we cannot look at it in the simple number of saying what is the total population without taking into consideration what are sitting in essentially farms and what are sitting in the wild. Second to that, which is on the agenda of the One Health policy um, of, of South Africa's intended legislation changes to to the sort of the broader conservation agenda saying that it must play a role in the transformation of rural communities and it must play a role in in economic transformation of those communities the one example that's continually cited in vacuna is the one example that says to me that the current argument there are so many parallels to the vacuna trade you're going yes this is the intention this is the intention we're going to farm them we're going to farm them we're going to trade them we're going to trade them we're going to deal list them line for line we're in a very very similar predicament to what we are with rhino but we draw the line of comparison when we just look at that total population figure if we take that all together and we start looking at some of those early conservationists uh, in the 70s 80s and 90s that were huge uh, defenders of trade Many of them have turned around since then and said if they could have predicted the lack of impact on wild populations of Vicuna and the lack of impact on rural communities, they would never have stood by the submission to CITES to delist them. So it's a, it's a pretty contentious one, but in my estimation, it goes further to warning about the pitfalls of trade. And I also look at the numbers that they achieved in the 70s when it was put it, when it was placed on Appendix 1. They were able to stop the rot. So the stability of stopping poaching, but without this, this exaggerated trade that doesn't serve the wild populations and doesn't serve the, uh, the local communities proportionately, proportionately is a key word there, is the biggest lesson that we should be taking from it and saying that these flippant remarks of saying, well, that goes back into conservation, it goes back into communities and look how well it worked for the vacuna. Well, it didn't. And we should be extremely cautious of drawing these baseline parallels to saying that reducing uh, legislation or delisting animals from Appendix 1, Appendix 2 is going to result in this miraculous re, miraculous recovery of rhino, I think is flawed and it's only telling half the picture. So uh, to answer the question, is Vacuna a great example of why we should open up trade? No, I think it's why we should continue to have very, very sincere and very authentic conversations and interrogations over what these proposals are actually going to do into the future, not just written up anecdotes on paper that that's you know going to get them a license. We've got to go so much deeper, and that's the lesson. And if we just stay on the surface level as we are now, the short answer is it does not do the job that the South African government and the South African traders are saying it could potentially do or not do. And it is not a good example of saying we should open up trade. That's me. Yeah, it was very interesting, sign and and real real set out by you. Um, you know, the, the Vicuna story goes way back. Uh, I remember that I think it was around about two thousand and eleven, twelve, round about then. 
when the rhino thing was starting to really bite here in in southern Africa, and the vacunia at that time uh, was very much the the poster child of the pro trade lobby here. And and what we've seen as 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 you've been elucidating, we've seen how introduce a so-called solution. Um, and maybe it is showing signs of working in a particular area. If it's not working in the other areas where that species occurs, the whole thing is likely to fail. Um, because to have 200,000 vicuña in Argentina or whatever the, the, the thing is, and very few in the other places, rather like we have here in, in Africa, where South Africa still, de- de- um, despite the, the depredations of, of, of poaching, we still have the, the major rhino populations here in Southern Africa. You know, unless um, we can see the recovery of rhinos throughout their distribution, so that, you know, you're not just basing your recovery story and your commercial story on one single population, but you've got to look at the effects all over. Yeah. So, you know, you need to have a unified policy. And that's why I always uh, maintain that for the Southern African states to start talking about removing themselves from CITES and going it alone and trading with willing partners in the, in the East, to me, that is the worst possible thing that could happen to, to the rhino's future in Africa. I couldn't. Agree. I think the vacuum story is a very, very sound one to think very hard about when we start talking about um, routes for the, the, the rhino in, in Africa. And the other thing it also reveals is the fact that we have not, despite all the talk, we have not cracked the nut of uh, conservation activities supporting local communities. You know, when it comes to hunting, for example, we talk about the pathetic uh, percentages that the communities benefit by. Yeah. And the same with the goes for so-called tourism. Not a ne- nearly enough filtering back into the communities so that they are likely to say, we lose thing because we do well out of it. I, I totally we agree. haven't cracked that nut. What, what story are we telling? I, I totally agree with you. You know, even if you look at the the population, and I will describe it as an explosion. You know, it's gone up to north of one hundred and eighty thousand animals. You know, from that from that initial six thousand, and in terms of population growth, that's huge. But the contribution to communities has not changed. It's still sat. It's it still remained at that two point two to six percent on the generous level. And if we look at the stated contributions of trophy hunting, uh, to to continue your example, Peter, into local communities, that's estimated at only three percent. So again, the current operations that are saying that they are contributing so valuably to community upliftment, etc. As a percentage of industry, they simply are not. They're not employing massive amounts of people. They're not employing people on a skills development level. They're not increasing um, 
the, the, the scalability to include those local communities in any reasonable form. Um, and I, yeah, I think your, your comparison and your, your points that you've raised are 100% valid. And we really need to look at outside of the species is to look at the concept and the principle of community value. And what does that relationship look like? If we continue to treat communities as a beneficiary of profit um, and not as a participant in the generation of that profit, we will never move the needle. We're going to keep Africa and we're going to keep large swaths of South America in an aid state. And, you know, in a, in a I mean, this is a bit a bit out of out of this lane but to me it's really really interesting if you consider that after world war ii um germany hong kong singapore japan all received aid they received aid from the west from all over the world to recover their economies and to recover from these sort of radical social injustices of their past but yet africa has never been able to do that. We've received aid year in, year out, and we've we built our reaction to how we how we look after our people based on an on an aid based economy, not on an entrepreneurial based economy. So when we filter that back down and we say we want Africa to take its rightful place as a global force in in global economics. We can never do it if our own domestic thinking is still treating local communities as a beneficiary of an international entity's ability or an international trade's ability to generate profit for itself and for its farmers or its, or its chief protagonists. We have to break that. And that is a principled approach. It's not just a financial modeling approach. It's not saying, okay, well, we can create money here, so therefore we can push this amount into the communities. What role do they play in the, in the building of that business? And what role do they play from a state level in saying, how do we develop the skills capacity so that they can run their own operations and not just be beneficiaries of someone else's? I totally agree with you. That is the nut to crack in... I would go so far as to say African economics, not just conservation economics. I would say that that is the, that is the nugget. And I know the friends of mine that will be going, oh, Borchard, you're starting to sound like a socialist again. No, I'm not. What, I, what I'm saying is, is that there is such an opportunity for growth on the continent in every possible measure, in every industry. And to unlock its real sustainable value is to take people along for the ride. You know, kind of like a, a rising tide raises all boats approach to it. Um, interestingly enough, if, if I can move on, talking of, of trade, Namibia, this, uh, this article was sent to me uh, by Rob up in Miremi um, in Botswana, who made me aware that Namibia is planning a massive dehorning operation of 600 rhino in the next 12 months. And we know that Namibia is one of those countries that you were referring to, Peter, earlier about who are huge protagonists of, uh, of potentially breaking away from CITES to open up the trade predominantly with, with the East, as, as you suggest. And so what seems to be very evident is that they are 
dehorning, yes, and as an anti-poaching measure, there is a lot of merit in that. And I know you've got something to talk um, on, on that, Peter, about the effects of dehorning, uh, which I'm going to swing to you now. But it is interesting that a country that is pro-trade is going through this massive dehorning exercise over the next 12 months, and no doubt they're going to be sitting on that stockpile saying, now we've got more motivation than ever to open up trade. So I'll predict that over the next 12 to 18 months, we're going to see an increasingly vocal Namibia in the pro-trade sector. But uh, Peter, you've got some information about the effects of dehorning. Yeah, well, it's, it's an aside. You know, something that we've often wondered about, and uh, you know, in the sense of what effect on the, the animal does dehorning have? I mean, we know that the animals are, are, are put under for the, the time that they're dehorning. Their eyes are covered, their ears are plugged, and every every possible thing is done to avoid trauma uh, as far as the animal is concerned. But at the back of our minds, we've always had this sort of nagging feeling that what what does it do to the animal? And um, the again, the the pro trade lobby has completely downplayed any effect. You know, it's, it's completely harmless. It, it, do, it doesn't affect the, the rhinos in any negative way whatsoever. And we've always sort of had a niggle about that. Um, and so uh, in a study, for the first time, I think, um, some black rhinos were dehorned. And um, the results of that dehorning, well, they've observed changes in the the rhino's behavior. So now we're talking about black rhinos here, I think, uh, only. But uh, data from the this, this study shows that dehorned rhinos engage in 37% fewer social encounters. Wow. And that the area that they, they patrol also shrinks from um, by an average of about four and a half square miles or about 45% compared before the operation. And they've, they've used GPS transmitters to actually follow the the, 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 the rhinos with sworn of horn stumps to keep an, idea, an eye out on their activity. And, and they have concluded that horn surgery alters their behavioral ecology. So male-to-male interactions drop the most, suggesting that dehornings could affect social structure, changing dominance patterns, and um, I mean, the, the 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 team lead on the study um, has acknowledged that the dehorning hasn't impaired their survival, and natural mortality did not increase. So that's not what we're talking about. But they we are seeing those effects on rhinos that is changing their their behaviour, their their ranges, the way they interact. And you know, people might scoff at that and say, oh, "Well, it's nothing." But it just goes to show that how important ongoing study is. Because from a, from one point of no, it doesn't affect them at all. We're now seeing somebody saying, hang on, it does affect them. We don't quite understand all the ins and outs of it, but we are seeing changes in behavior. And what other it begs the question as to what other changes are we not observing in the in the animals? So I, I think um, studies like this, ongoing, 
really trying to dig down, not just accepting the conventional wisdom that this is so and always will be forever and ever, that we are digging down. And I, I love studies like this, because they just make us stop and think again. Um, um, and I think the three of us would would argue that that we are not... Uh, Maybe I shouldn't put words into your mouth, but from my point of view, I'm not surprised to hear this. This, this isn't a, a huge revelation to me because there has to be, when you're taking animals, and let's face it, when you, if you were to do it on a, um, a thoroughly commercial basis, every two years, you're chopping the horns off, off rhinos re-releasing them, letting them grow, chop them off again, letting them go, the horns grow, chopping them off again ad infinitum. We have no idea of the effect of that on the long-term well-being of rhinos. Yeah, I'd, uh, I echo your sentiment that these kinds of studies are, are so important. Um, I think there are some... There are some considerations, though, within that, is that the study, as as you say, was done on black rhino, which are far more territorial, have uh, are far less social anywhere, and are far more aggressive towards each other than white rhino, and the vast majority of the the, the total rhino population in farmed hands and in wild hands. Uh, are white rhino. So I think what would be deeply valuable is to conduct the same study on white rhino because I think that would that would give a a more accurate assertion to our shared sentiments, our comments about sort of the cautionary tale towards trade, whether that is coming from farmed or, or wild rhino. I think that would be a a, a more relevant uh, study. I, I think you're right. And what I, I would just like to add there too is that it, I, I'm not saying that um, dehorning is not important. And I'm not saying that it doesn't work in terms of the uh, of, of poaching. You know, we, we do know that there has been a, a drop in the the attack rate on rhinos that have been dehorned, and so, you know, I think we have to say that dehorning is still a very, very, very valuable tool in, in our conservation arsenal for protecting rhinos. So, I'm, I mean, I'm not making any comment about we should stop um, uh, uh, trimming uh, horns. Yeah, I hear you on that 100%. You know, it, uh, there's also the <laughs> the more the more crass observation perhaps is 55 million years of rhino on the planet and they haven't lost their horns uh you know they, they haven't evolved from from having a horn uh that in itself is quite telling in my opinion if they didn't need them or there was a reduced need um, we would have seen some kind of evolutionary capacity to suggest that long-term they, they can do without a horn. Um, but as you rightly say, from a conservation perspective, it's, it's an extremely valuable tool. And when done correctly and with deep consideration, can uh, have wonderful effects. And as an organization, you know, we as the Shan Elizabeth Foundation, I mean, we've done 
countless dehornings and probably will continue to do so. It's a, it, it really is a good tool. But Shannon, you and I have spoken about this so many times. You know, we, you do a dehorning and I've yet to be at a dehorning that isn't emotional because it, it's just so invasive. Um, and, and we took a horn off a huge white, white rhino bull um, you know, the, 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 for obvious reasons, I won't, I won't describe it, uh, in location or in size or in anything like by name or anything, but it was enormous. And the reaction, Shan, I don't know if you remember of the bull, the moment he woke up from the sedative and he yeah. started to sniff the remnants of his horn on the ground and they sort of do this sort of head baying thing, suddenly going, I had this huge weight on my nose. Where's it gone? And you know, we crying, vets are crying. Uh, it's it's a deeply emotional thing to experience. And in that moment, yeah. you, you, I mean, back me up, Shan. But I mean, you, it's so obvious that there is an impact psychologically, if nothing else, on a rhino. Yeah, I mean, they they're going to be confused first off. They they don't understand what's happened to them. It's like when, when we wake up from anesthesia from a surgery, you know, you don't remember anything. You don't know kind of what's happened to your body and you're just starting to get all your feeling back and, and understand what life ahead looks like. And it's always quite traumatizing. And, and the sedative alone, it makes, it makes them quite often shake and, if you haven't seen it before, it looks like they're in pain and it looks like something's going wrong yeah. and it's really worrying, you know, really like it always freaks me out. I hate seeing it. Yeah. I'd, you know, that, that sort of shaking those, those tremors that you quite often see um, on a, on a dehorning, um, you know, that's, I also celebrate the capacity and the skill of the vets who, through nothing but experience, uh, have been able to work out the best concoction of medicines to to maintain them and to look after them and to make sure their respiratory functions are are, are stable while you're going through this this process. So you've got an industry of people that are working so damn hard to be as what what's in invasive to be not as invasive um, as possible and extraordinary skill to maintain them in, the, in, in that state to minimize that impact. But that impact is just so damn obvious. It, it truly is. Um, I, I look forward to the evolution of, of this study um, just before we move on to, to better understanding the social interactions as as the study starts to to say that it, there, there is an avoidance and I, there's a photograph that i believe is a brent sturton image uh that is just so powerful it's a dehorned rhino that comes face to face with a fully horned rhino just after having its horn cut off and there there is just this capturing of like what the hell happened to you dude <laughs> and maybe i'm projecting here maybe there's a bit of uh, anthropomorphizing going on here I, I, I admit that but 
you can't help but wonder, if nothing else, the curiosity of these animals, of how they look after themselves after the fact. Because if you could dehorn all of the rhino at the same time, in a short period of time, all the rhinos are the same. So the social hesitancies that the study suggest might be stabilized, but you're not. You know, by the time you've de- you you dehorn the first rhino, by the time you dehorn the last rhino, you're back to dehorning the first rhino. In fact, you'll probably dehorn the first one before you find the last one to dehorn. You know, such as the such as the complexity of finding them, and such as the the expense of of time and currency to do a dehorning operation of that size. So it, it isn't as a, 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 a sort of a baseline where all of the animals are exposed to this impact. So you're going to end up with a dominance of some and a submissiveness of others, I would think. But yeah, we, we should keep an eye on this story because I, I'm pretty sure that there are other studies going on at the moment or will be triggered as a result of, of this research. Because we've only been doing these crazy mass dehornings, not crazy, but these these extraordinary mass dehorning exercises in the last 10 years. And all of the conservation budget that is available to us in whatever small capacity is going to protection. And what I'm encouraged by is that we're starting to see science coming back in and saying, okay, we've gone through these uh these measures we've gone through these interventions let's understand the impact of our own intervention of our best guess to protect rhino like now we understand more we're learning more um and sylvia earl's words ring in my ear you know when when i spoke to her in season two i i said to her you know don't you get don't you get deflated when you just see this this mass destruction of the natural world around us and as she did with just about every question and every point of discussion, she just, she floored me because she said, she said, no, she said, look at the amount we understand now. Look at our ability to learn. The rate at which we can learn has been exponential in the last 50 years, the last 15 years, I would argue. So our ability to learn and to apply those lessons is increasing dramatically you know she made the comparison from the beginning of her career to now and the rate of of data collection and the rate at which we understand is our greatest weapon so bring on the studies i say bring on these new research methodologies and let's let's keep tracking on it um, if i can make just one more little aside on that yeah. uh, score simon the um another little study that i came across was that a, a group, and admittedly this is now done in a zoo, and one can understand why it has been, and hopefully we can extrapolate these things and do things in the wild as well. But uh, a zoo study have, has been collecting and analysing rhino poo. And it sounds like a strange thing to do. That's not, I was doing uh, that this morning. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it's not. I was doing it this morning. I was I was elbows deep in Munu's poo. Well, maybe, maybe we should send it off to a lab. But then, <laughs> um, once they they where they uh, extracted the micro, microbial DNA, and they found that the microbiomes of the eight rhinos in the study differed depending on their age, their season, the reproductive status, etc. So I mean, the, the samples were collected from. 
two rhinos that were less than two years old, two that were between three and seven, two adult rhinos that had given birth at the zoo, and two that had been unable to. And when they compared the adult samples to each other over time, they found consistent differences. So the samples from the two rhinos that had given birth had elevated levels of a group bacteria called uh, Rickenelasia, which helps break down the compounds that lower the animal's ability to reproduce. And the samples from the rhinos that were unable to give birth contained an elevated level of different group of bacteria. And that's been associated with poor reproductive outcomes in other species, including cows and primates and even humans. So there might be a connection there, but obviously a lot more research is done and needs to be done. And I think, again, it, it just points to the fact that, you know, you might read this and think, oh, man, what we are really and truly a lot of money spent on just finding that out. But the point is that we're finding things out that we may, may not properly understand, that then from further research that suddenly has an answer to a big issue. Um, and that shows the, the, the vital nature of, of research. Academic research in the field's research is so important to our knowledge of the, the, you know, the, the principles and our ability to conserve nature across the board. Again, if I'm if there's anything in this, it's my call to all those huge organizations out there to fund wildlife research as much as they can. Because that is the way to the future. Well, I, is understanding. I mean, we we also, if we allow ourselves to embrace the the intelligence of these animals, I mean, we're seeing it with with Monu now as the seasons change as different influences and different factors change around him, he definitely eats differently. And I think that there is so much that we understand and there's so much that we don't understand about plant medicine and how, Shan, this is in your wheelhouse big time. You know, plant medicine is huge and we can see how Munu will react to different food. And depending on his mood, depending on the season, depending on the temperature, he will seek out certain things. And so their ability to uh, understand their, their own physiology and intuitively or instinctively seek things out that might be a remedy, that might be uh, he needs more water, so he's going to hunt out and he's going to look for, like I know if, if, when we absolutely need to check water is because he'll go up into his camps and he'll eat more and more prickly pear and his water consumption goes down. You know, So they compensate so beautifully and so effortlessly that I think if if we had to study that, as you rightly say, the lessons in that transfer into in, into medicine. You know, paracetamol is willow bark. You know, we, we learn these things from nature. So I, I, I would argue that these kinds of investigations and studies into uh, animal diet and animal reactions to different stresses or different influences helps us understand ourselves. And it helps us understand what we can do. And I'm not making any 
crass comparison of physiology to the human form and a rhino. Obviously, obviously, I'm not doing that. I'm just saying that broadly speaking, the studies that 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 you support, I think that the motivation to do them isn't just in the single line understanding of that species, but also how it could potentially translate to other species, including ourselves. I'm I'm quite curious with um, animals like rhino. And some of these plants that have medicinal value is uh, how much do they do they inherently know when the medicinal value is there? Because like you said, we we know that they seek out certain things, but let's say he needed something that he doesn't normally eat. Would he eat it willingly if we put it in front of him? If it has medicinal value, but what if it tastes doesn't taste so nice? You know, like I, I'm really curious about some of that and how to be able to give them certain things and and know that it's it's going to help or it'll be safe for him, especially if it's not tasting good and something he would normally go to. It's a really tricky, interesting area to investigate. Well, I think that's why natural habitat, natural range states, etc., are so important is that then they have the ability to understand their terrain. You know, we could never take uh, Munu and put him, I don't know, in a in a in a totally different, unnatural environment, right. and expect him to react to food in the same way that he would in the wild. You know, so no, but it doesn't mean that there isn't a plant in South America that might actually be good for him if we were trying to heal something. Yeah, uh, you know yeah, what I'm I, yeah, I hear where you're going. I think that's, I think that's a really interesting discussion. I mean, from a, from a, from a taste perspective, I've tried to eat some of the stuff that Munu eats because I'm just curious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now I know who's eating the dog food. Yeah, I don't know if it's clever. <laughs> no, no, I mean, um, the ones the ones that humans can eat, obviously. I mean, I'm not going <laughs> to cruise along same and, try and, and try and, you know, take a big bite out of a needle bush. Um, but yeah, it, but but it's, it, it's incredible. I mean, what he what he enjoys. I mean, take his favorite treat, nurse. We know that that's toxic to humans. But my gosh, it's it's catnip for rhinos. Yeah. So yeah, you, it's, you it's know, an interesting one. I mean, uh, um, sorry if I can interrupt there. It reminds me that of a study that has been done. Uh, my mind's just working on on science at the moment, <laughs> but uh, we do know from studies of rhinos' brains that the black rhino, for instance, uh, the, the part of its brain that governs um, spatial knowledge and awareness is far greater than in in white rhinos. And again, it's diet related. You know, rhinos, uh, white rhinos eat grass, so as long as there's grass, they keep mowing it. Um, the the black rhino is far more dependent on flowering seasons and leaf seasons and so on, and where those actually those those um, those plants come into flower or into into leaf, they they have have a, a spatial memory of that, and I think it's something something like about 150 plant species that a rhino has imprinted in its brain that it knows that it can eat and use. So, I mean, that's obviously after 
years and years of thousands, millions of years of, of evolution that they are able to do that. Uh, because I, I don't think that a rhino mother can teach child where to eat. It'll follow, perhaps it just follows and does what it does, and that's how it begins to understand things. But we know, of course, that, that in species like the orangutan, their knowledge of fruiting trees and where they are and what times of the year is unsurpassed. I mean, I think they, they rely on something like 200-odd species. And there, because of the long periods that the, 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 the babies are with their mothers and the intelligence of the orangutan, it is able to physically teach the child uh, what things can be eaten when. So I, th- I think in the, in the case of the rhino, it's... It's instinctive. It's imprinted. Yeah, it is. It is valuable. Um, it, it it certainly is a, a a a valuable point, and I think it also talks to our ability to rewild later generation or captive born rhino who are not presented with the the natural situation of eating what the mother eats in the first two years of its life and learning how to be in the bush. So the further you move away from that, you know, generation after generation in captivity, they no longer attuned to teaching or sharing that information with their with their offspring. And I know that that is a factor when they consider the rewilding process. So that mother-calf interaction is critical in the sharing of knowledge and skill to survive in the wild. And at what point does that get diluted to a point that you you can't do that anymore? Um, so I know that that's a consideration, but deeper than that, I, I really don't know. Uh, but before we, we're starting to run out of a bit, bit of time, um, sentencing in the Eastern Cape Court in South Africa, uh, in, in Makanda, uh, just saw the sentencing of the Chitio gang, Francis Chitio, uh, Trimo Chawuke, Mishak Chawuke, Simba Masinga, Naomo Muyambo, and Abraham Moyani have all been sentenced with terms ranging from 16 to 20 years in the court. That literally was, that that happened a moment ago. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, a really, really good sentencing there. So let's hope it sticks. You know, the, the, the... the legal deterrent is there for poaching. You're getting massive, massive sentences. Um, we've got to follow through with those sentences. But it's really encouraging to see that those kinds of convictions are starting to happen around the country. You know, there was a time where those sentences were concentrated in the Skakuza court in Kruger. Um, but now we're seeing the National Prosecuting Authority really dishing out some some hefty sentences elsewhere and consistently you know it's the first of the it's not the first sentence of this magnitude which is good um another report that came out i'm just going to flash over a few things uh, but i think that they're worth mentioning and they're definitely worth reading our friends at earth league international uh, run by andrea croster and if you've ever seen the ivory game or save our seas um the the chief protagonist in that is a chap by the name of Andrea Croster, who works extensively in the illegal wildlife trade and convergence intelligence, which is how does the intelligence gathering within the environmental crime arena affect other 
syndicate crimes and transnational crimes. And they've just released a hefty report that they did in conjunction with the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in the U.S. Um, on environmental crime convergence and how integrated and intertwined a lot of these syndicate operations are. It is fascinating reading, absolutely fascinating reading, uh, worthy of an interview. So I'm going to, I'm due for a chat with Andrea. So Andrea, if you're listening to this, get ready. I want to get you on the show. We should have a chat about this report. Um, our friends at, uh, at United for Wildlife supported this documentary called Rhino Man. And it's been filmed over the last eight years. And the John Joko III, the, the director, and Matt Lindenberg from the organization have spent eight years with rangers in the sort of the greater Kruger Timbavati area. Um, and the intention of the documentary was to showcase what it was like to be a ranger on the front lines. And their lead character in the, in the documentary was the late Anton Nzimba, um, who was head of ranger services at Timbavati, who was assassinated while they were filming. And it's a pretty extraordinary dive into what it's like to be a ranger, what it's like to go home when you're putting members of your community behind bars, what that means to your family, the impact on your family, the impact on your emotional well-being, etc. Um, and there was a screening in in uh, London last week that we sadly couldn't get to um, with Prince William and an extraordinary event. So well done to everybody involved in that and good luck with the documentary. And if you have the opportunity to see it, please do it. Please do so because it gives a really good insight into what it means to be a ranger on the front lines. Uh, the other one, which I think is one of the most seminal works in conservation, uh, Bloodlines. So that was the expose of the canned hunting, trophy hunting industry and the fallacies that have framed this industry for, for decades. And that was under various license agreements and distribution, and those have been lifted. So it's far more freely available now. So obviously, the links will be in the show notes, but you really, really should see that. It's difficult watching. Man, it is hard to watch. But no matter where you sit on the ideas of the values of trophy hunting, if you're against it or if you are for it, what is shown in bloodlines cannot be ignored. And if there is an ethical bone in your body, those industries should be dismantled as they are being dismantled now um, through through various legislative interventions in South Africa's parliament. So it's it's a good one to watch. It's a tough one to watch, but it'll help mobilize the world's intellect and 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 passion for solving these deeply inhumane practices. Uh, and then lastly from me, Homeland Security in the US, uh, I think it was about two and a half weeks ago, launched its first dedicated unit to fight the illegal wildlife trade. So I think there's no coincidence, there's no small coincidence in the fact that we're seeing Earth League International talking about convergence intelligence. We're seeing it with our work with the United for Wildlife. We're seeing it uh, with our work with various other organizations. Uh, Interpol, um, 
Julian Rademeyer's work, all of these little helicopter examples that I'm pulling on now are showing a momentum in global intelligence circles and global crime fighting circles that there is an increasing role that the illegal wildlife trade is playing and there is a concerted effort to collaborate and to con combine uh, intelligence resources to sort of nail the the Capone theory you know I can't get you on drug running or human trafficking um, but I can get you on something else I can't get you on the legal wildlife trade because the sentencing and the and the the legal processes for that are much lighter but if the intelligence I gather in the legal wildlife trade can lead to a conviction of that same individual for human trafficking then that's that's a victory. So convergence intelligence is is where it's at, and that we we've been talking about that on the podcast for many years now, um, and it's gathering momentum, which is really exciting. So a lot of a lot of amazing work being done, um, and we're going to stay at the forefront of it. Uh, some interviews coming up over the next couple of weeks, uh, which I'm really looking forward to, and we'll share those with you in due course. But as ever, to Everyone listening, sorry, do you, have you guys got anything else? I'm just looking at time. We 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 kind of up on time. Okay, well, just literally one sentence, which I think is noteworthy. Our friends at um, African Parks have done it again, and they've, they've reintroduced 16 southern white rhinos to Garamba National Park and the DRC. Um, the, the the white rhinos came from Pinda yeah. in in KZN. And they've been transported up there. And yeah, it's, 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 again, it's a nice story. Jesus. It's good to see rhinos going back into places they were. Unfortunately, of course, Karamba was a northern white rhino stronghold. And we know they are functionally extinct. Yeah. So it's really good to know that the, the species, once again, has been reintroduced to places all over Africa. And that's the long-term savior, I think, of, of rhinos. The more rhinos we've got in more places, the better the chance of their survival. Yeah, and it just puts a spotlight on uh, African Parks Network's extraordinary work and ability in affecting yeah. those those moves. Um, amazing stuff, as ever, from them. Uh, to everyone listening, please keep your questions coming through. As, as you've heard over the last couple of weeks, they really shape some of the direction that we take on the show and uh, really informs what we yeah what what we put on the show um if we can understand what you want to hear so share those questions anywhere on social media art of conservation you can email us at info@artofconservation.com um and please remember to send us a review send us your questions social media or on on email and uh, we will talk about it on air so thank you so much and we'll chat again soon take care bye we must rethink our relationship with wildlife, the environment, and each other. Join us as we uncover the innovative, unifying, and urgent solutions we need to protect the planet from ourselves. This is the art of conservation.